I pray that as we look into your word, that you would show us wonderful truths. In Jesus' name, amen. As I start our message today, I do want to make a mention of of a very historic uh, event in, in our country that happened this past week, and I want to praise the Lord for it. Never in my lifetime did I ever think that we would ever see the Supreme Court overturning the horrible case of Roe versus Wade. But by God's grace and for God's glory, that has been overturned. And I don't know if you realize how big of a deal that is. We have been ruled by the Supreme Court for too long. It has taken the rights of the people in individual states away. And it did that with gay marriage. It did that with abortion. And it continues to seek to do that. But by God's grace, we had enough justices on the bench. And their heart was moved, no doubt, by God. And they were able to see that this was an unjust law. An absolute unjust law. And I want to give the God the glory and give Him the praise for this historic event. And to give me a little glimmer of hope. For this country called the United States of America, which is the greatest country to live in, but has slidden so far back from God. But I have to say that today I have some hope, amen, that by God's grace, perhaps we can turn back to where we need to be. Now we get to our message today. When I was a kid, we used to play a game called King of the Hill. Uh, We might play that game on the top of a dirt pile. We might play that game on the top of a bed. Uh, It wasn't a very difficult game to play. The object of the game was to get to the top and to stay there. Anybody else ever played this game when they were a kid? Now, here's the problem. Once you make it to the top, you realize that you can only be there for so long because you've got all these other kids coming at you and pulling at you so they can get at the top. Uh, This chapter here is about man's desire to be number one and the vanity of that desire. When I was a kid, there was something else I used to like to do on Saturdays. I used to like to watch professional wrestling. Now, professional wrestling is completely different today than it was when I was a kid. We knew it was fake when I was a kid, but it wasn't so out there that it was fake. At least you could kind of play along that maybe this is real. And there was a guy on there who's actually still around today for some unknown reason, and and his name was Ric Flair. And Ric Flair was the embodiment of self-absorption. He was the 16-time world champion, and he would absolutely tell you that. Some people loved him, some people hated him, but everybody watched him. Ric Flair would come out in flashy robes, expensive suits, diamond rings, and it was so hard for him to keep those alligator shoes on the ground, he would say. And now now he'd say things like, uh, to be the man, you've got to beat the man, right? And he would say, I'm Ric Flair, the styling, profiling, limousine riding, jet flying, kiss stealing, willing and dealing, son of a gun. And then he would also say, Woo! Amen. I've lost half of you. I've garnered half of your attention at this time. But it was all that. Ric Flair was a caricature. And in this chapter here, Solomon shows us the vanity of self-absorption. And if anyone should know about self-absorption, it is Solomon. As I've said before, he was the richest man in his day. He was the wisest man in his day. And he was the most powerful man in his day. In his day, he was on the top of the dirt pile in his game of King of the Hill. He was the Ric Flair of his generation. But he learned the lesson that the meaning of life is not found in elitism. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. 
The first thing I want you to see is self-absorption is often revealed in politics. We see that in verses 1 through 3 and also in verses 13 through 16. Now, you probably know this, but politicians are often great self-promoters, aren't they? Politicians are often great self-promoters. Now, what does it mean to be self-absorbed? Well, it means that you have an unhealthy preoccupation with yourself. And usually that's revealed by the way that you talk. You want to find out if a person's self-absorbed, just listen to them. Have you ever known someone that when you begin to speak with them, somehow the conversation always comes back to themselves? You'll say, man, I tell you what, I got a really good deal at the store today. And they'll say, oh, I got an even better deal. Let me tell you about it. You'll say, man, I had the best lunch today. And they'll say, oh, I had an even better lunch. Let me tell you all about it. Oh, I was sick last week. Oh, I thought I was going to die last week. I was so sick. You can never beat them. The conversation always has to be about them. Well, this chapter here ends with an illustration about the meaningless of self-promotion. If that's the way you live your life, it, it, it ends with this illustration that shows us this. And, and, and it tells us about a king who was born into poverty. Uh, he had a terrible life. He even spent time in prison. But after he got out of prison, he pulled himself up out of the pit and he rose to the position of being a king. And so it closes with this illustration of this man who, who went from the bottom to the top. But then when he got to the top, he became stubborn and he wouldn't take wise counsel. And he became an old, what the scripture says here, an old and foolish king. And waiting in the shadows over there was a young man. And this young man had political aspirations as well. And eventually he became the king of the hill. He took this man's position. But then once he died, everyone soon forgot about this king who rose from nothingness to the very top. Here, if you're not here to remind people how great you are, they'll forget it. Right? So this king dies and he's forgotten. This reminds us that there's always somebody there to take our place. It doesn't make any difference if you're a king or if you're a barber. Somebody's going to take your position eventually and you're going to be forgotten. Politicians who promote themselves need to remember that Jesus says the way to greatness is to deny yourself. Proverbs 27.2 says, Let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Now, self-absorbed people... I'm just going to the politicians here because that's the context. Self-absorbed politicians love power, not people. You see that in verse 1. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. So Solomon recognized that there were people in power who oppressed the other people. Oppression is the result of selfishness. You have a man who's in power and he has an agenda. And in order to accomplish this agenda, he doesn't care what it costs the common people. There he is on his throne and he has something he wants to do and he doesn't care how he has to accomplish that, how many people he has to step on, how many people he has to hurt in order to do it. The agenda he has may lead the country to poverty. The agenda he has may lead to injustice. The agenda may lead to the stripping of basic human rights. But the person in power doesn't care because in this person's mind, in this politician's mind, their agenda is more important than people. And that's what Solomon is talking about here. He said it. He said, I looked at the politicians. 
And they didn't care about the people they ruled over. They had an agenda, and whatever they needed to do to get that agenda across, they did it, and people suffered. I saw something kind of hinted at this not, not long ago. We have record gas prices in our nation. Everybody knows that. And, 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 and there was a particular senator in, um, who said, when faced with questions about rising gas costs, uh, she said, you know, she said, it really doesn't affect me. I passed a whole lot of gas, gas stations on the way up here driving my electric car. Now, when a person says something about that, what does it say about them? It says that they don't understand that there's a whole lot of people who can't afford an electric car. Maybe you've heard the old phrase, uh, let them eat cake. Let them eat cake was a phrase that was attributed, falsely attributed to Queen uh, Marie Antoinette, the last queen of France. She was known as to be a person who didn't care about the poor at all. And and when it, it was said that when she was asked, what shall the poor do? They have no bread. It was said that she replied, let them eat cake. In other words, she had no understanding that there were people who not only didn't have cake, but didn't have bread either. So Solomon here, he saw one group of people who were shedding tears, and they had no comforter. And then he saw these other group of people over here, which by the way, he was the elite, that they had the power over all of these people. And so we see here that corrupt politicians make life difficult on earth. That's what you see in verses 2 and 3. Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they which has not yet been, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. You know, there are countries who are trapped in poverty. All the time I spent in Haiti, I saw this. Trapped in poverty because of corrupt politicians. There are countries today who are in war with other countries because of corrupt politicians wanting land that doesn't belong to them. There are countries today who have no access to justice because of political corruptness. There's a person or a group on top. They have an agenda and they don't care anything about those below them. And look at what Solomon said about the people in these countries in verses 2 and 3. He praised the dead more than the living. He said, man, it's, it's so awful to live in these countries. You'd rather be dead. And then he says, even better than that, it would be better if you just never existed at all. Because you'd never have to see any of this. You know, one of the biggest arguments for the atheist is, if God is real, why do these wicked governments exist? They point to things like the Holocaust. They point to senseless, bloody wars. They say, well, if God exists, why do all of these things happen to these poor people? None of those things prove that God doesn't exist. What they prove is that evil people exist. Evil people exist. Politicians can ruin your life in an attempt to make their life better. Politicians can ruin your life in an attempt to make their life better. And because politics is a place where money and power can be found, some of those who seek political office are selfish and even narcissistic. And when a selfish and narcissistic person is elected to office, it's revealed through their policies. So we see here that the first example of self-absorption that he gives here is the one that everybody can see at the top. The politician whose pockets are getting bigger while the people's pockets are getting smaller 
And their portion is leaner than it's ever been. Now in verse 4, we see that self-absorption is often driven by envy. Solomon tells us what drives the self-absorbed person. Again, I consider it all travail in every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Now there's two ways you can translate the Hebrew of, of verse 4. First of all, you can translate it like this. A person works hard and then they're envied because of what they accomplish. Or secondly, you can translate it to say, a person works hard so that they may be the envy. In other words, their motive is to be the envy of other people. Now, what is envy? Envy means I want to be better than the other person. That's what envy means. That could mean that I have more than you do, or it could simply mean that you have less. Either one is fine because that's what envy is. For instance, a person uh, may be fine without a new car. They're absolutely fine without a new car until the neighbor gets one. If the neighbor didn't have a new car, they'd have no desire for a new car. But because the neighbor has a new car, now they want a new car, that's envy. Kids will use this logic to convince their parents to buy them the latest thing. They'll say, Mom, Dad, I'm the only one in class without one. And so it's not so much that they want one, it's this, it's that everybody else has one. They would be fine if everyone else didn't have one. And, and, and the reason this is vain is because this is an endless cycle. Somebody's always going to get a new car. There's always going to be some new trinket. There's always going to be something newer, something shinier, something cooler for the kids. Always. That's why it's foolish. Now, envy, he says, can lead to great evil. I'll give you a story of this. One of the way, first ways that Solomon's great wisdom was revealed was this, uh, there was a, a situation that happened where there were these two women who lived together. They didn't have a husband or anything, but they lived together, and they had a child. Each of them had their own child, and their, own, their children were the same age. Well, one of the women's ch- children died. <laughs> And while the other woman was asleep and her baby was asleep, she went and she took her dead baby and put it beside the other mother and took that woman's child and kept it for its own. And when the woman woke up, she realized what had happened. And she was so furious, she went to, to, uh, she went to the law and ultimately to Solomon and said, Look, this is not my child. My child is dead. And this woman has taken my child. Well, there was really no way to figure out who was telling the truth because the children were so small. There wasn't DNA and stuff back then. There was no other witness in the house. And so Solomon had this grand idea. He said, okay, I'll settle this. He said, bring me a sword. Now, Solomon was never going to cut his baby in half, y'all, okay? Never in a million years. He said, bring me a sword and I'll cut the baby in half and I'll give you half and I'll give you half. That's what he said. Well, all of a sudden, the woman whose child, who the child really was, you know what she said? She said, no. She said she can have the baby. The other woman said, sounds like it's a good idea to me. See, what was the point? The point was this. She didn't want the other woman to have a baby. It wasn't so much she wanted that child. She just didn't want the other woman to have it. That's what envy is, y'all. Envy is, I want this because you have it. That's why I want it. And you can see how deceptive and how awful 
a sin like envy can be. Now, self-absorption, for some, verse 5, means to be consumed by laziness. The fool folds his hands together and eats his own flesh. What does that mean? That means that a person can be so lazy, it kills them. Consumed by their own laziness. See, some people think so much of themselves that they think that other people should have to work for them. They think, well, I should just be able to sit at home and you should work and you should take care of me. Even though I'm grown, even though I'm a dog, even though I'm physically able to work, you should have to pay for me to live. You see, just because someone's poor, it doesn't mean they're humble. In fact, some people are poor because they're proud. Too proud to do a certain job. Oh, you won't catch me doing that. No, sirree. If I can't have a job doing this, I'll just sit at home. Too proud to admit that they need help. Oh, no, I've got this. I've got this all under control. I don't need anyone. Too proud to submit to training so they can learn how to do something. Sometimes people are poor because they're just so proud. And then sometimes people are poor just because they're lazy. But I want to tell you something. This is something our our country needs to hear big time. Laziness should never be rewarded. Ever. Parents, you shouldn't reward laziness at your house. If you've got a lazy kid and you're rewarding them, you're making life difficult for all of us who live here in the United States of America. Laziness should never be rewarded. But there are people who are so self-centered, who think so much of themselves that they think that everybody else should take care of them. Laziness is condemned in Scripture and it should be condemned by Christians. If you're able-bodied and you think someone else should pay your bills, you think someone else should buy your food, you think someone else should take care of your kids, you think someone else should give you a house, you think someone else should mow your grass, and you're able-bodied, you are self-absorbed. You are absolutely self-absorbed. You think far too highly of yourself. So it's not just the corrupt politician up there sitting up there ruling over other people. It can also be the lazy person who just sits around and expects everyone to do everything for them. So it's amazing to me how Solomon goes from from the self-absorbed person on the throne all the way down to the self-absorbed person who's living in poverty because they refuse to work. Now he says in verses 6 through 8 that when we're self-absorbed, we'll isolate ourselves. Look what he says there. First of all, it's foolish to work too much. Look at verses 6 and 7. Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Then I returned and saw, I saw vanity under the sun. Now this is interesting because, and Solomon likes to do this a lot, he likes to write in contrasts. So this is in contrast to the lazy person of verse 5. You know, there's two extremes. You don't work at all. And then the other extreme is that's all you do is work. So that's what Solomon's dealing with here. And both can lead to self-isolation. Both can lead to self-absorption. If you're lazy and always living off of others, nobody wants to be around you. 
But if you're working all the time, you don't have any time to be around people. So both are examples of self-absorption because in reality you isolate yourself. In verse 6, Solomon tells us that you can have one hand filled in this world or you can have two hands filled in this world. Solomon had both. And he doesn't recommend that. Because he says if you have both hands filled in this world, he says you're going to have trouble. And so Solomon says, therefore, it's better not to be lazy, but it's better to have less in this world than to have more. He's saying, don't be like the lazy person and have nothing. But don't be like the workaholic who has a whole lot but never has any time to enjoy. Both of those extremes are examples of being absorbed with yourself. Where you need to be is in the middle. And then he says in verse 8 something very interesting. He says, to die alone is worse than to die poor. There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yet he has neither child nor brother. Yet there is no end of all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity. Yea, it is a sore travail. Verse 8 is a picture of a self-absorbed workaholic who is near the end of his life. All he ever did was work. And now he's about to die. Now he's about to die, but he's not satisfied. Solomon said he's got money, he's got things, but what does the text say? It says it was all at the, all at the expense of a family. He never slowed down long enough to consider the question, for whom am I working? For whom am I depriving myself of pleasure? And notice that the family mentioned here is not even a spouse. It's children and siblings. Why? Because most likely you will outlive your spouse or your spouse will outlive you. Most likely that won't happen when it comes to your children. And it does in some cases, and only by God's grace can a person get through that. But generally speaking... If you're married, your husband or your wife, one of you are going to die before the other one, and then you're just kind of left with with your children. And he gives his friends as well. Those friends are like family. Let me give you a little advice. Once you get older, you get about 45, 50 years old, you're not going to make a a whole lot of new friends. You're not... I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that as a person who's been there. Most of the friends you make is going to come way before that. And if you're waiting your entire life to make friends or make relationships with the people who are in your family, you're probably going to be waiting too late. And I'm going to give you a little advice here this morning if you're a workaholic. You're never going to make enough money. You hear me? You know how much enough money is? Just a little more. You're never going to make enough money. But God has promised to take care of those who belong to Him. Spend your time making memories, not money, because memories don't get spent up. Invest in people, because when you invest in people, there's a better return. Ask yourself the question of verse 8. For whom do I labor? Why am I doing all this? Why am I working myself to death? Why am I working my fingers to the bone? What's the point here? And if you're forsaking family, you're not working for your family, friend. 
If you're forsaking church, you're not working for God. If your labor keeps you from the Lord and your labor keeps you from those you love, then you are working for yourself. You are self-absorbed. You need to open up one of them hands and let it go. Because he said, better is one handful. One handful of the Lord with quietness than two handfuls. You realize in the end, you have no one. You can talk to money, but it won't talk back. Amen? You can patch your money, but it won't patch you back. And you can love your money, but it won't love you back. God made people for that. And that brings us to the main point of this chapter, the benefits of godly relationships, verses 9 through 12. You see, the cure for self-absorption, the cure for the disease of self-absorption is godly relationships. And Solomon gives us four benefits of godly relationships in verses 9 through 13. I want us to look at them. First of all, he says in verse 9, he says, you get a better return on your work. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. We accomplish more together. And there's no better application for this principle than the church of Jesus Christ. There's a whole lot of work to do, y'all, for the kingdom of God. There's evangelism. There's discipleship. There's service in the church. And the preacher can't do it all. And one person can't do it all. And when God saves you, He expects you to join yourself to a body of believers and help with the heavy load of work that is yet to be done for the glory of God. That's what He expects. Come and be a part of a glorious, godly relationship in the church of Jesus Christ. Help the work. Two are better than one. Secondly, he says in verse 10 that there's a safer environment with godly relationships. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falls, for he has not yet another to help him up. So there's a safer environment. I was really struggling on how to illustrate this this week, and I started reading all these stories, and there were so many of them, I became overwhelmed and became a little depressed. So I just decided not to go with a specific story because it was so depressing. But if you want to be depressed, just Google people dying alone. And that'll depress you. Multiple cases all over of people who haven't been found for years until years after they were already dead. You imagine that, that you have such little interaction with people, you have oscillated yourself so much that three, four years passes by and no one even knew you were dead. Someone just happened one day to go into their home and find your mummified body sitting on the couch. That's depressing, isn't it? You want to be depressed? Google that, buddy. I could have gave you specific illustrations with names of individuals this happened to. But it was just too heartbreaking as I read it. Being alone is not a safe place to be. Solomon warns of the danger of falling alone. You fall into a ditch, nobody to get you out. You fall into the water, nobody to get you out. You fall and hit your head, nobody to help you. Now, there's all types of ways to fall. 
But no matter what, if you fall, you need somebody to help you. And that's the point of it's not safe to be alone. And I'll tell you, spiritually speaking, it's not safe to be alone. Accountability is one of the greatest benefits of the church. But when you isolate yourself from the people of God, I want you to know that you put yourself in spiritual danger. I remember one time I was, I was talking with a lady, and uh, she was, uh, I was in her home, and I was visit, visiting her, trying to get her to, to come to church. And she told me this story. And she told me about how she was never going to go back to this specific church again. And the reason she was never going to go back to this specific church again was she saw so-and-so who goes to that church in the grocery store and they didn't talk to her. Now, I'm not making this up. She saw so-and-so in the grocery store and they go to that church, so she is never going to that church again. Which... I'm a critical thinker. Got me thinking, well, wouldn't that mean you wouldn't go to that grocery store again? She didn't speak to you at the grocery store, not at church. Wouldn't you be better saying, I'm never going to Kroger again. Because I saw so-and-so in Kroger and they didn't speak to me at all. You see, there was a woman who had isolated herself for such a foolish reason. She was so self-absorbed that she would not go back to church because someone who she believed saw her didn't speak with her in a grocery store. And that's exactly what Satan wants, friend. Satan wants to isolate you. He's like an old lion out there who's not really after the whole pack but looking for a straggler. Looking for that zebra that limps. The one that's weakened. The one that that can't keep up with the pack. Satan doesn't want you around the people of God. He wants you around people who don't care if you live a sinful life. He wants you around people who will never say a word to you for the sin that you live in. And then he says also, the next benefit is in verse 11, protection from the cold. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat, but how can one be warm alone? In the desert, nights are cold. And travelers would often sleep close together to keep warm. The single traveler has no one to keep him warm. And so the principle here is it's easy to grow spiritually cold without godly relationships. Spiritually cold means that you are numb to spiritual things. You know, when I was a kid growing up in the 80s and stuff, um, it, it was really getting popular for guys to, to pierce their left ear. And, you know, nobody's going to go and pay for that to be done. That was a foolish thing to do. And so what they'd always do is they'd take an ice cube and they'd numb their ear up. And they'd either take a stud or a needle and they'd stick it through there. I can't tell you how many guys I saw do that. But the reason for the ice was when your ear was cold, it was numb. There was no feeling there. You see, when you get spiritually cold, there's a lot of things that won't bother you anymore. It won't bother you that you're not in the Word of God anymore. It won't bother you that all of a sudden you're using ungodly language. It won't bother you that you're looking at ungodly things. It won't bother you that you're not getting to church. You are numb to the things of God. You are spiritually cold. I want to tell you, friend, listen to me. You need folks around you who will warm you up. This year, I believe it was January of this year. It was definitely this year. 
There was a 10-year-old girl in, in Russia who was lost out in a freezing winter blizzard. For 18 hours overnight, this 10-year-old girl was lost in a blizzard in Russia. People thought she was dead. People thought, hey, how in the world could she survive this? And when they finally found her, you know what she was doing? She was hugging a stray dog. And that stray dog kept her alive. The warmth of that stray dog kept her alive. That little girl had enough sense to know that she'd freeze to death alone. And listen to me, friend. You will freeze to death spiritually alone. You have to have Christians to warm you up. You, you have to be humble enough to say, I'm not the king of the hill. I'm not up here by myself. I'm not alone. I need the people of God around me. And then we see in verse 12, the final benefit, strength to overcome. And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. A lone, lonely traveler would, would be an easy target for thieves. Traveling in groups was a whole lot safer than traveling by yourself. And that threefold cord that's not easily broken reminds us that we're stronger together. We need people who will help us fight. Listen, we're an assembled army for the Lord. Some of you think that you're hit men for Jesus. Some of you think that you can just go out there all by yourself and you're just a Holy Ghost hit man hired by God to be all by yourself and do the work of the Lord. That's wrong. There are no hit men for the Lord. We're an assembled army. We're not independent contractors for God. We fight this war together. We need people praying for us. We need people sharpening us. We need people looking out for us. And it is absolutely meaningless to try and do the Christian life alone because God didn't make you to be alone. God made us to be together when He created us. And when He recreated us through the new birth, He recreated us to be together as well. Never fall into the temptation of self-absorption. That you got to be the one. And it's all about yourself. Never fall into this temptation of power to be elevated above everyone else. Or, or this temptation of elitism to have more than everyone else. Or this temptation of laziness to take from everyone else. Or this temptation of isolation to just be rid of everyone but yourself. Life has meaning when we have first and primarily a relationship with Jesus Christ. But then secondarily, a relationship with those who belong to Him. That's when life has meaning. And those are the two things that we should be sure we have. A relationship with Christ and a relationship with His people. And when we have those two things, life is much better. You remember the story of the lost sheep. There was 99 sheep there and there was one that went astray. Remember that? And when Jesus went and He got that lost sheep and He threw it over His shoulder, He brought it back to the fold. He didn't set it up on a pedestal, did He, for everyone else to see? He didn't put it in a pen to be by Himself. What did He do? He took it and He put it in the fold with the 99 others. And my dear friend, that is exactly what He will do when He saves you. 
You may try to stray and you may try to be your own person and you may be self-absorbed, but I want to tell you, you do it at your own risk. You do it at your own risk. If you don't know Christ, well, I hope you'll come to Him. He died on that cross alone so that you don't have to be alone. Took your sins. Took your punishment. Died and rose again. If you'll turn from your sins and give your life to Him, He'll save you. Maybe this morning, that's a decision you need to make. Maybe this morning you've fallen into one of these temptations of self-absorption. Temptation of power. Temptation of elitism. The temptation of laziness. Or the temptation of isolation. Perhaps you're seeing it in time to get rid of it in your life. Maybe you need to come to this altar and pray. Maybe there's other business with God you need to do. Whatever it is, I pray that you'll hear His call. Father in heaven, we love you. We're thankful for...